Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning, Mercy Church. So we're continuing this morning in our series, Lions, the Fire, and the Faithfulness of God, going through the book of Daniel. My name is Joe Schwartz. I'm associate campus director here at the Providence Road campus. So what we've been looking at so far in the series is how to live faithfully as exiles in the world. So what we believe, what the scriptures tell us is that we are sojourners, we're exiles. We belong to the kingdom of God and yet we live in the world. Philippians 3 tells us that we are citizens of heaven and that's where we put our hope. Daniel gives us a pretty good blueprint for how to live faithfully as exiles. In fact, so far, Daniel's been just killing it. Uh, He's been interpreting the dreams of kings. He's been exalted in the uh, empire of Babylon. He's been facing up head to head with kings and declaring boldly the truth of God. Daniel has shown us how to live faithfully. And yet, it's not until chapter 6 that we get a peek under the hood and get to see what is the source of Daniel's faithfulness as an exile. How is it that through this whole time, Daniel has gotten to be so faithful? And it's in chapter 6 that we see the key to kingdom living, the source of spiritual strength for Daniel is prayer. It's prayer. Now I know you just heard that prayer is going to be the topic of the sermon, which makes many of you tense up or check out. Maybe you have gone through a lot of efforts or maybe initiatives or resolves, New Year's resolutions about, you know, increasing your prayer life and you're showing up this morning discouraged. Maybe you've gone through a cycle of discouragement that I've been through. Um, So I would early on and following Jesus, I would hear this great sermon on prayer about how prayer is vital for the Christian life, how it's the source of spiritual power, how we have to prioritize it. And I'd hear of these great spiritual giants that would pray for hours and hours. So I'd go home and the next day I'd, I'd give myself to prayer and I'd think, Lord, God, I need you. Would you, would you be my daily bread? And I also, I, I'm, I kind of want those Cheerios and the, oh wait, and then I would, I would start thinking about breakfast, that I was hungry for breakfast. I'd go from daily bread to cereal. And then I'd say, all right, no, 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 bring it back in, bring it back in, bring it back in. All right, Lord, I pray, I pray for my friend. I pray for my friend, Paul. I know he, I know he needs you right now. And oh, I haven't, I've just, I just remember I haven't texted Paul back. I need to go text Paul back. And what I would find is that I approached prayer with hopes of entering the kingdom of God of seeing God in all his glory. And then two minutes later, I'm in the kitchen with a bowl of cereal in one hand and my phone in the other, thinking what has happened. So I'd go from these good intentions in prayer to discouragement in prayer and distraction. And that would happen over and over and over again. I'd try to pray and then get distracted. And over time, what I would conclude, I wouldn't say it aloud, but I would conclude, you know, this just isn't worth it. It's not worth it. Maybe I'll offer up a a little prayer before bedtime. We'll say our prayers before a meal. You know, we'll pray through difficult situations in life, but a vital prayer life, a prayer life that that stretches out to heaven daily and and reaches for the power of God. That's just not for me. I'm, I'm no spiritual giant. And to be honest, if you're here this morning, you're probably just discouraged. You're in a dry land of prayer, wondering if you can ever have a vital prayer life. Well, that's you. If you're in the wilderness of prayer, then Daniel 6 is going to be a tidal wave of refreshment for you. Daniel 6 is going to be a tidal wave of refreshment for your weary soul when it comes to prayer. And yet, here's the thing. We got to know this ahead of time. This is not going to be an easy fix. This isn't how to have a world-changing prayer life in five minutes or less. 
That's not how it works. Daniel is going to change the way we see prayer. He's going to reverse our paradigm in the way we see prayer. You see, what if these distractions that we face in prayer, that cell phone notification, that desire to to get up and eat breakfast, that thought about the meeting that's coming ahead, what if those distractions aren't merely lapses in focus, but deliberate resistance from an enemy who hates when we pray? What if it's deliberate resistance from the world who pulls us into this kingdom and hates when we communicate with the kingdom of heaven? What if it's deliberate resistance from our flesh, which hates when we give ourselves to the things of the spirit instead of the things of the flesh? What if this isn't just distraction? What if this is actual resistance? What if instead of just having good intentions and hoping that our prayer lives would be better, we would make it a committed routine? We just make it a part of our lives. Like eating, like brushing our teeth, like sleeping. We would make it so carved into our day as a priority, so as to say that prayer is sweeter than the best food and drink, and it's more refreshing than sleep. What if instead of good intentions, we committed to a routine of prayer? And then what if instead of coming to prayer in apathy, as if prayer is a multivitamin we must take each day, we came to prayer with a heart of expectation, as if prayer was a great feast that we need to take advantage of that God has laid before us. See, what if we expected resistance, but we committed to a routine and we expected great reward in prayer? That's what Daniel's going to show us. And that's what God leads us into by his promises in scripture. This is the kind of prayer that not even lions can stop. It's the kind of prayer that lions can't stop. And God is going to call us into this. So if you're discouraged, you're about to be challenged by Daniel. We're we're thrown away from prayer by our iPhones and Daniel wasn't thrown away from prayer by a den of lions. It's going to be challenging, but I want you to see it not just as condemnation toward your prayer life, but as an invitation, an invitation into the joys of communing with God on a daily basis of richly receiving his rewards. All right. So what we're going to do here is the, here's what what we're going to cover through the whole text. Here's the main point. When you face resistance to prayer, commit to routine and expect reward. When you face resistance to prayer, it's coming going to come right after this sermon. When you face that resistance, commit to routine and expect reward. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go through the story of Daniel and the lions then in chapter six. And as I go through that, I'm going to show you the resistance against prayer, the routine of prayer, and then the reward of prayer. We're going to go through that, and then I'm going to loop back around and show how his prayer life, the prayer life of a spiritual exile in Babylon, can change our prayer life today. Y'all ready for it? All right, let's dive in. Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And here we're going to see, we're going to see the resistance of prayer. Resistance of prayer in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, governing officials, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel has seen changes in kings, changes in rulers. He's even seen changes in kingdoms. It was once the Babylon kingdom that was taken over Jerusalem, and now it's the Medo-Persian kingdom. He's seen a lot of life change in his long life, and he's coming to the end of his life. But the one thing that's been constant, one of the things that's been constant in his life, is he has prospered. The favor of the Lord has been on him. He's been given wisdom from God, which gets you favor with the Lord. He's been given the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace, and people like that. He's been given diligence and self-control, and all those things have advanced him that he's received from the Lord, and he has prospered. And yet, his prosperity is not how you can tell that Daniel is a faithful exile, just like it's not today. 
prosperity, doing well with the world. That's not how you can tell that you're a faithful exile. In fact, it's the opposite. So in John 15, verse 18 and 19, Jesus says, the world, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Because if you were of the world, the world would love you. But because I chose you out of the world and you do not belong to the world, therefore the world hates you. In James 4, 4, uh, the apostle James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God, which means the opposite is true. That friendship with God is going to mean at some point enmity with the world. See, it's not prosperity that is the mark of him as a faithful exile. It's actually resistance. It's resistance. See, if you go through the world and you go along with the world and talk like the world and think like the world and wholeheartedly embrace the world in all of its ways, you should think about whether you're actually a follower of Jesus. That's what a Christian is. It's someone who followed a man who was crucified by the world, who was hated by the world. And so if our master was hated and crucified, if our master received resistance, so will we. So Daniel has expected this in every level of the kingdom. He has not only received prosperity, he's also received resistance. So this is nothing new to him. So he's expecting it when in verse four, the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. They knew there's nothing wrong with Daniel to accuse him of. So they had to come up with a plot, a plot that would contradict the law of the kingdom and the law of his God. So what did they do? They actually came up with a genius plan. You see, each day as Daniel was prospering, they would see him get away. He'd be about his governing work and he'd say, guys, I got to go. I got to get alone. And they would see that he was praying to his God. And he'd enter back into the work of whatever satrapping and satraps do. And then he would go back into prayer for the second time. He'd say, hey guys, I got to go away. I got to go away. And he's going to pray. And they saw him do this time and time again, three times a day, every day. Now they didn't know the Lord, but they saw that he was prospering and they saw that he was committed to prayer. So they assumed, they concluded that his prosperity, his favor was connected to his prayer life. So they come up with a genius plan. They all come up to Darius, who by the way, loves Daniel. Daniel's his right hand man. They come up to the king, all the satraps and officials, and they say, hey king, we've been talking, all of us, which they, uh, they actually implied was including Daniel. He said, we've all been talking and we have an idea. For 30 days, for 30 days, make a law that no one can pray to any king, any God, any man, except to you, King Darius. Darius, assuming that Daniel was a part of this great agreement, thinks, well, I didn't, I wasn't thinking of that, but if you guys want to honor me in that way, that'd be fine. So they say, if someone does pray to a different God, for 30 days, they are cast into a den of lions. Darius thinks, all right, uh, that's a pretty severe punishment, but I'll take it. All right, so if, if someone prays to a different God or a different king for 30 days, they're cast into the den of lions. What was their strategy? It was to bring Daniel away from prayer. Except this is different than chapter three. If you've been along with us in the series, you remember the fiery furnace in chapter three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, They were tempted by King Nebuchadnezzar to worship idol. And the law there, it's similar to chapter six. The law there said, you must bow down to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar. But the one in chapter six is actually more difficult. It's more tempting. It's more subtle. Because the law does not say that Daniel was forced to bow down to to an idol. Daniel, as a faithful Israelite, would have said, I know I'm an Israelite. We can only worship the true God. I refuse to bow down to an idol. But this was different. It it, it didn't say that Daniel needed to bow down to an idol. It said that he only couldn't pray to his God for 30 days. So you think what Daniel could have done? He could have thought, you know, I'm going to, I feel like I pretty much stored up a good amount of prayer, been praying three times a day for the last, you know, 80 years. That's a pretty good amount of prayer in my storehouse is 30 days. I can wait. I can wait. And in the same way, 
the enemy comes to us, not in bright red clothing and with horns saying, you must not pray. You see, I think if the enemy came to us in that way, with bright red clothing, with horns said, I am Satan and you cannot pray to your God. I think many of us genuine believers would say, red alert, this is a spiritual attack. I'm going to pray. All right, I, I know what to do right now. This is obvious. That's Satan and I need to pray. That would be obvious, right? But that's not how he tempts us. Just like this temptation of Daniel, the temptation was it's just 30 days. Let's pray later. And in the same way, the temptation for us today, Satan doesn't come to us and say, you must not bow down to your God. He just says, hey, do it later. Do it later. So you're, in the, you're getting in the word in the morning and you're, you feel that pull toward prayer and Satan just says, just, you'll have time this afternoon. You'll have time tonight. Just one day. Maybe you're in bed and, and going to, to sleep with your spouse and there's conflict. And it's just brewing there. And you think, should I bring it up? Should I pray? Should I pray for us and bring healing? And Satan just said, no, it's late. Y'all are tired. Just do it later. Just do it later. Don't worry about it tonight. See, Satan comes to us, not tempting us to cease prayer altogether, lest we see his temptations, but instead he comes to us with a subtle, just do it later. Just do it later. And yet, What Daniel saw was that this subtle temptation toward compromise was real. There was a horde of satraps and officials scheming against him, trying to get him not to pray to his God. And it's the same thing for us today. It may be subtle, but make no mistake when you're bowing down in prayer or you're thinking about prayer and Satan comes to you with a later, it's very real. He's there. He's the one whispering. He's the one telling you to put it off. And yet Daniel is not thrown off by this. He's not thrown off by this. He gives himself to the routine of prayer. This is verse 10, the routine of prayer. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Guys, the Bible is not boring. That was a stud move. That was awesome. All right, think about what Daniel just did. He just heard that there's a law that's forbidding him from praying from 30 days. And what, what does he do? He hears that the document's been signed, that he's going to be cast into a den of lions. Just if he prays. He hears the document and he thinks, yeah, I'm going to go pray. I'm going to go pray. I'm going to go do it. Yep. It's almost as if he, the injunction said, you cannot breathe. And Daniel's like, Yep, I got to pray. I got to pray. I just, I can't, I can't not breathe. I cannot pray. For Daniel, fish swim, birds fly. God's people pray. It's just what we do. That's just what we do. Daniel committed himself to a routine. He didn't leave it up to chance. He didn't think, well, I was really trying to grow in my prayer life. And, you know, this will be an opportunity just to rest in grace. You know, just to kind of sit back and rest in the grace of God. No, he gave himself to unhindered, unwavering, committed routine. What did he do? He he went up into his room and he bowed his knees. Now, bowing your knees now, that's that's a common way to pray. It's it's fairly normal. But in Daniel's way, no, that wasn't that wasn't the main way to pray. Like if Daniel was in a prayer circle and and someone got down on his knees, it's like, why are you bowing down your knees? What we do is lift our hands in prayer. That was the main way to pray. But Daniel got down on his knees and what getting down on his knees signified was submission to a ruler. And he set his face toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of David, was a reminder for Daniel that God was going to fulfill his promise to gather all the exiles that have been spread across all the earth back to Israel, back to their homeland, back to the promised land promised to Abraham and to all of his descendants. He bowed down to the kingdom of God. He bowed down to the kingdom of God and he knew that resistance was going to push him away from godliness and toward worldliness, away from the kingdom of God and toward the kingdom of the world like a current sweeping him away. And so he knew that by routine, by daily setting his face on the kingdom, he was 
like a swimming stroke, pushing against the current of the resistance. He was pushing against it. He knew you do not drift into godliness. You drift into worldliness. So he didn't leave it up to his feelings. He gave himself to a routine of prayer. Three times a day, I got to get away and pray. The day before, on the thro- nearly on the throne, right next to the king, about to be exalted in peace, I'm going to pray three times a day to my God. The next day, his life on the line, about to be cast into a den of lions, I'm going to pray three times to my God. Unwavering commitment to a routine of prayer, because for him, it's just like breath. It's what he lived on while he was in exile. Now, many of you, potentially, your legalism radar is going off right now. Your legalism radar is going off. The fact that he prayed three times a day, it seems kind of strict, right? It's kind of regimented. It's, it's not grace-centered. It's not grace-centered. Like, if you had a friend who just cut off what he was doing and got away three times a day and prayed, you'd probably think, like, does he get the gospel? Does he understand the grace of God? Or is he a legalist, right? I want, you, I want to give you a parable. I want to give you a parable. Imagine two sons and two fathers. So the first son... He has a father who smiles whenever his son comes to him. He just embraces him. In fact, whenever his son comes to him, he runs out and he embraces him. The son has comfort that whenever he approaches his father, his father is going to welcome him, receive him, take him in open arms. He's going to love him. He's going to shower him with blessings. Now imagine the second son. The second son has a father who is mean. The father expects his son to do chores before he comes to the father, to get everything done before he comes to his father. The father, whenever his son approaches, his arms are crossed, his foot is tapped, is looking down and, and wondering, why, why would you come to me? Imagine these, now imagine these two sets of father-son relationships. The first marked by grace, the second marked by legalism. Which of the sons do you think will go to his father more? Is it the one that's set free by grace or is it the one that's in the constraints of legalism? It's the son who knows that his father is going to welcome him. He goes freely, willingly, constantly to his father because he knows it's a relationship of grace. It's a relationship of grace. I wonder if our prayer lives show that we're not set free from the bondage of legalism, but in fact, our prayerlessness shows that we may still be in its bonds. That we still underneath it all believe that God is upset with us, disappointed with us. Our freedom and spontaneous prayer may not show we're free from the bonds of legalism, but actually in its chains, that we don't want to come to our gracious Father. See, what we need is not to be set free from all constraints. What we need is to be constrained by the love of Christ. When you be constrained by the love of Christ, just like the the son who knows that his father loves him and that knowledge of his love compels him to go forward into his father's arms. See, grace, this is what Dallas, Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. In fact, grace properly received, will produce godly effort. This is what Titus 2 says. But the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training, disciplining us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, grace produces routine. It produces grace-fueled routine. And how does that work? How do we get more self-control? Well, the more that we see God and come to him and remember that he loves us, not on the basis of our works, but on the finished work of Christ, the more we see his open arms bidding us to himself, receiving us, embracing us, kissing us with his love, the more we'll do that, the more we'll fall in love with the routine of prayer and hate being away from it. We'll fall in love with being at the feet of Jesus and that extra sports center episode will seem just a little less appealing. Clicking the button of, are you still watching on Netflix? will seem a little bit less appealing as we more and more fall in love with the presence of God. 
That's how grace produces effort. It produces a routine that's fueled by grace. See, Daniel, he went to his God and he was expecting blessing. And that brings us into the third point, the reward of prayer. The reward of prayer. So, the satraps and the officials, they knew that they were going to find Daniel praying and they did. One thing for you to know is, as you commit yourself to praying, if you go through resistance and say, I'm going to keep on going in, in, uh, in prayer despite what you do, Satan, what the, the enemy at that point is not going to say, well, great. I'm glad that we had this battle. I'm glad you won. Now that you've won it, you go enjoy the riches of grace. And I'm going to set you free to have a beautiful, wonderful prayer life undisturbed. That's not how it works. In fact, if you come away from this sermon committing yourself to prayer, expect even more affliction. Expect suffering. Expect the enemy to heighten his battle. So as to say, you, you gave yourself to prayer and you thought there would be a reward and look what's happened. You trusted in your God and took the step of obedience. Where has this got you? There's no worth in prayer. There's no reward in prayer. As you resist against the enemy, he only is going to increase his, his battle against you. And that is what happens to Daniel. So the satraps and the officials, they find Daniel praying and they go to Darius and say, hey, Darius, remember that law that you signed? Daniel has been praying to his God. At this point, Darius knows that he's been played. He knows that Daniel wasn't a part of this agreement, but he has to stick to his unrevocable law. It's a law that can't be revoked. So he says, all right, Daniel, you're going to have to be cast into the den of lions. And at this point, you're thinking, where is Daniel? Daniel does not say a word until verse 21. The whole time he's silent. What is he doing? What is Daniel doing? He's talking to his God. He's talking to his God. So in Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching his disciples on prayer. And he says, but when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues that they may be seen by others. So he addresses our bent of prayer, of praying in front of people in order to seem righteous or more righteous than them. He addresses that bent. And so he's, he's trying to tell them, hey, don't, don't, don't seek the reward of people. And you think that at that point, Jesus would say, don't be like the hypocrites who, who they're out in the street corners and the synagogues and raising their hands and screaming so that people will hear them pray. Don't be like them. You think he would say, just pray for prayer's sake. Just pray because you know it's right. Aren't I good enough for you? Just, just pray because you know it's the right thing to do. But that's not what he says. In Matthew 6, 5, Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your room and pray to your father in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus knows that we are hardwired toward reward. And we're going to go toward what we think is most rewarding. So that's what Daniel is doing. Instead of appealing to the king, he's appealing to the king of heaven. Instead of arguing with the satraps and officials, he's showing that he'd rather have the favor of God than the favor of man. Instead of appealing to his power or strength or skill or sufficiency, he's casting himself on the Lord and believing that the reward of God is better. The reward of God is better. You see, we, we kind of have this feeling sometimes that we think we shouldn't, we shouldn't come into prayer thinking that we're going to be rewarded for it. That we should come to God and say, God, I'm so thankful for you, but not anything you give me, but I love you. And no, 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 it's not about what you give me, but I love you. And I kind of need these things. But if you don't give them, I love you. It's okay. I just want you and not your reward. It's like, think of the father's love. Is he disturbed that we are blessed and rewarded by his presence? He wants to bless us. He wants to reward us. In fact, Job 21, 15 says that it's the wicked who say that there is no profit in prayer. It's wicked to believe that there's no profit in prayer. And in reverse, it's those who know God's character that believe I'm going to have great profit, great reward when I come to the Lord in prayer. So what I want to show you is a few ways that Daniel is rewarded in prayer. The first is the reward of God's presence the reward of God's presence. I want you to look at verses 17 with me. 
The king has cast Daniel into the den and a stone, verse 17, was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled him. The king, the, the one on the throne, the one who has all the comforts of the kingdom can't enjoy them. He can't enjoy all the comforts of the kingdom. Now look where Daniel is. Verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, Oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. You see what Daniel could have done is just taken a prayer break, rested in grace. He could have just said, I'm going to pray after 30 days. And what, he would have been right next to the king on the throne, enjoying its comforts. Instead, he chooses the cost of prayer. He chooses the cost of prayer. And what he finds is that it is better to have God's presence in the den of lions than to be on the throne without it. It's better to have God's presence in the den of lions to be on the throne without it because we can't enjoy the comforts of the throne if God's not there. But in the den of lions, in affliction, we can enjoy God. The king is disturbed and Daniel isn't touched in the den. He's not touched. See, a lot of times we don't pray because we say we're too busy. But when we say we're too busy, what that really means underneath it all is that it costs too much. That the time that we would spend in prayer, we would rather spend in something else. It will cost you in prayer. It'll cost you the fear of man because the time you're spending on your knees before God, seeking his favor is time you can't spend seeking the favor of man. It'll cost you your independence, which is so valued in our culture because prayer itself is a declaration that I'm entirely insufficient without God's power and presence. It'll cost you productivity because all the labor of prayer keeps us away from the labor we could be doing at our jobs. It's costly to step aside and say, I'm going to pray to my king. And yet what Daniel finds is that the cost of prayer, the cost of prayer cannot be compared to the gain of knowing God in prayer. All that we would lose from spending time in prayer, and this is practical stuff. This is time we would spend socializing. This is time we would spend enjoying really good things like recreation and movies and all those. Those things aren't bad. But what I'm saying is every single time we choose to get away and go to our God, the cost, the pain of routine can't be compared to the reward of God's presence. To be in prayer and to know God there is better than any comfort we could ever have. That's the first thing we see. The second we see is the reward of God's deliverance. The reward of God's deliverance. Look at verse 23. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children and their wives and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Side point, the lions, it's not that the lions were stuffed and that's why they didn't eat Daniel. So what we just saw, they were clearly hungry. They were so hungry that they climbed up the den in order to eat their bodies before they had fallen to the bottom of the den. If that sounds gruesome, that's what the Bible just said. Again, the Bible is awesome. It's great. It has cool stories like this but the reward of God's deliverance. You see, Daniel could have leveraged his political power to debate the satraps and officials. He could have fought on those lines, but instead, what did he do? He gave himself to prayer. So I'm the youngest of five. 
So I've kind of had, since I grew up, that, that kind of youngest mentality of I got to toughen it out or act tough. If I'm, if I'm not feeling tough, I even have to act tough. Um, I got to, you know, I got to push through things. And, um, but I'll admit there were times where when I was faced with a, a conflict or especially conflict from someone older, I would yield perhaps the childish move that one can yield as a boy. I'm telling on you. So in a fight with a sibling or in a fight with someone at school, it would be at the point where I was utterly defenseless, where I could do nothing else, where I could not leverage my strength or debate or whatever. And I felt so helpless against this person that just knew they had the victory over me that I had to say, all right, I got to appeal to a higher power. I got to appeal to dad. I got to appeal to principal, whatever it was. But as I did that, it was a complete reversal of the situation person would be smiling and thinking, I've, I've, got, I've got this person. I've got, I've got this, little, this little dweeb. I'm, I'm looking at him. I'm smiling. And then I'd say, I'm telling on you. And that smile would turn to shock. Because they knew when they were once dealing with just a little boy, now they were dealing with a higher authority with whom they could not even compare in strength. See, when we, instead of trying to fight our own battles against the enemy and our suffering and our affliction, when we try not to fight our own battles, but instead say, I'm telling on you, we lock into a power that is beyond anything we can imagine. You see, I'm telling you, it's super, I'm telling on you is a super childish thing in the world, but super effective spiritually. It's really effective spiritually. So here's the thing. You cannot even compare to the power of Satan. He will win the day. The scriptures say that he's like a lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. He's seeking someone to devour. Have any of y'all fought a lion before? I haven't. He's a lion seeking someone to devour. We, don't, we can't even stand a chance against him. And yet, when we appeal to the king of heaven, Satan can't even stand a chance against him. See, we are defenseless against the lion of Satan, but the lion of Satan is defenseless against the lion of Judah. It's not even a competition. This isn't like those horror movies where it's like evil power and good power. Who's going to win? Jesus wins. He's going to win. He did win. He's always won. Jesus wins. It's not competition. It's domination. But when we appeal to his power, we get to see God's deliverance. We get to see him work on our behalf and we get to watch and wait and see him fight for us. You see the reward of God's deliverance. And the last one, the reward of God's glory. Read with me. After this, while the bodies are being, probably while the bodies are still being eaten, verse 26, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. Enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. See this situation. For 30 days, there was supposed to be zero prayer to the God of Israel. And then Daniel prays, And his life is about to end. I mean, he's being cast into a den of lions. It's over. And yet what seemed like the darkest moment in the darkest scene, one man on his knees flips the situation around. Just one man setting his face toward Jerusalem and saying, our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done it turns the kingdom. The praise of God was supposed to be shut up for 30 days. And now the whole kingdom is commanded to tremble and fear before the God of Israel. Daniel was about to be done, silenced by the pit. And now he's exalted as next to the king. And his God is exalted with him. When we give ourselves to kingdom prayer, we get to see this. God's people who pray, your kingdom come with routine, with discipline, fueled by grace, get to see the advancement of God's glory. 
as we pray for those who don't know Jesus, as we pray for the nations that have not come to him and we cry out, your kingdom come, we get to share in this same joy. And all it takes is one. This is how it's always been. Elijah, prophet of Israel, faced 900 false prophets. One verse 900 is not good odds. And yet he prayed. And they were all destroyed. And the kingdom of God spread. The apostles were not in a great place without their leader, without any official organization or approval from the government. And yet they gathered probably same similar size to this room. They gathered and they prayed. And from that desperate prayer, God sent revival across the land. You see, in every single major spiritual revival, it comes in different ways. Sometimes it comes through open air preaching. Sometimes it comes through pamphlets and, and street evangelism and all that. But there's one constant through every major revival is kingdom prayer. God's people devoting themselves to prayer. Look, Mercy Church is our vision. Mercy Church exists to bring a gospel awakening to the city of Charlotte that is carried to the ends of the earth. And this gospel awakening is impossible without his people devoting themselves to prayer. You know, we're going to see, it would be a really good thing if God's people are spread throughout having Bible studies and talking about the Lord and talking with people about the Lord. Those are really good things. I am not downplaying Bible or evangelism. Those all, all those things are necessary. But you want to know when true revival comes? It's when people, God's people are scattered throughout the city. And the same people who are working at the same workplaces say, hey, let's, let's get away and pray just for five minutes. I know it's busy season, but just for five minutes, we're going to get away and we're going to devote ourselves to prayer. Let the cost be what the cost is. We want the gain of prayer. It'll be when families in every home are devoting themselves to prayer and asking God, may your kingdom come here and now. It'll be when people are talking to God about people more than they're even talking to people about God. The latter is great, but you'll find that if we're talking to God about people, we're going to start talking to people about God a lot more. That's what we need is scattered prayer. And that's when we're going to see a gospel awakening. See, these are the rewards. It's not, like I've said, it's not a multivitamin. It's not a supplement. Let's take it or leave it. It's a feast for our soul laid out before us. And yet maybe you're coming in here today and you're thinking, I can't have that reward. That reward's not for me. The sin, even that I'm bringing into this morning, how could I come before the living God? How could I pray? How can I pray to him? I don't deserve the reward of God's presence. I don't deserve the reward of God's deliverance or God's glory. I can't even manage to get my own life together. I don't deserve these rewards. The reality is you're right. You're right. You don't deserve these rewards. In fact, we all deserve not the presence of God, but the absence of God's presence. We deserved not his blessing, but his wrath. You see, Ephesians 2 tells us that we all were followers of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We weren't resisting Satan. We were following Satan wholeheartedly. We were on his side and against God, and therefore we deserve to be devoured like lions, just like these satraps and officials. Not the reward of God's presence. But you see, in this story, we find hope. The story of Daniel and the lion's den is not just a good story to encourage us to prayer. It is that. But even more importantly, it's a story that points to a greater story. You see, there was a man after Daniel who lived among the kingdom. And he came into his own, and yet his own did not receive him. But there was no fault in him. And a group of officials conspired against him to make something up against him because they could find no fault in him. And when they came to him, what did they find? Like Daniel, they found him praying. They arrested him and they took him to a reluctant official who nevertheless gave him over to death. And yet, 
unlike Daniel, Jesus was not spared from death. He obeyed God, not just to the point of the den, but to the point of death, willingly. Like Daniel renounced his flesh and his life to pray on that day, Jesus renounced himself and gave himself up for us on the cross, bearing all of our sin. And the stone was sealed after he died. And just like the king went to the tomb with anguish saying, Daniel, has your God been able to deliver you? The apostles came to that tomb on the third day, hoping that their God might have been able to deliver Jesus. And what they found was that the grave could not hold him. The grave could not hold him. The sealed stone did not ensure his demise, but instead he rose from the dead on the third day. And as he rose, he was exalted above every name that is named so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Not just Daniel, but everybody bowing at the name of Jesus. And by his exaltation, the glory of God has spread and will spread to every tribe, nation, and people. Jesus is alive. He's alive. And he wasn't just a faithful example of prayer like Daniel, much better. Jesus took rebels, separated from God, unable to pray to God, and he paved the path for us to pray to God. He paved the path for us to come to him straight to the throne of God. All who would believe in him, who would call on his name, who would believe that he had paid for all their sin and given them his perfect righteousness and rose from the grave. All who would believe that could come straight to him. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve the reward. And yet you also cannot earn it. You can't earn it either. You can't be good enough for it. Yet Jesus gives it freely to all who believe in him. It's open. It's an open buffet and it's free to all who would come through the doors of Christ. It's there for you. These are the rewards of prayer. All right, so what we've seen here is that God calls us into expecting resistance, committing to routine, and anticipating rewards. So what I want to talk about is how we can do this today. How we can do this today. The first one is prepare for resistance. How do we apply this? Prepare for resistance to prayer. Know that it's coming the scriptures say, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange, it's normal. You're going to go and try to pray because Satan hates that, you're either going to be tempted into distraction or you're going to be tempted into a lack of expectation. He's going to distract you, so expect it. In fact, this is the chief concern of Satan. Samuel, Ch Samuel Chadwick uh, says, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Do you hear that? See, we can do all the Bible study we can possibly do in the church and in our community groups. We can, you know, tell people about Jesus and do all those things. Those are good and necessary. But listen, Satan does not tremble at that. It's like we're all loading our guns with ammo, but there's no triggers on the gun. We could load it up. We could get it ready. And yet he knows they're not going to leverage this into prayer. Ephesians 6 says that, tells us to take up the armor of God, including the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But then it says, pray at all times in the spirit, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer is where we fight spiritual battles. Spiritual battles must be fought on spiritual grounds. So we must not just take up the word of God, which is true, but we must take the word and let it be like a kindling. See, a lot of times we, we come to prayer and we're thinking, I don't know what to pray. Well, that's because God has given us his word to be like kindle fire for prayer. As we read his word and as we study his word, we're gathering fire, we're gathering wood around the fire and then prayer is where we set the fire ablaze. 
load the gun, but also pull the trigger. That is how we fight spiritual battles. Prayer leverages the word of God into Satan's territory. And it it leverages the word of God into our spiritual battles. This is how we must fight and we must expect it. Don't be surprised by it, but commit to a routine. Commit to a routine. This is the second point. So me and my wife, we have a five-month-old. And so if any of y'all parents, you know that those first few months, communication changes in the marriage. It changes a bit. As in, if we could make eye contact and smile, huge win for the day. Huge win for the day. If we could be awake at the same time, huge win for the day. As we're changing diapers and waking up in the middle of the night and figuring out what to do with a baby, uh, communicating between one another is, was difficult. But what we did after a few weeks was a game changer. We went out to a restaurant. I love Chick-fil-A. Don't get me wrong. I'll eat Chick-fil-A most days of the week. But we went to a restaurant where you sit down and you have to wait. You have to wait on the order to come. You have to wait on the food to come. You have to wait on the bill. And it was in that time of forced waiting where we went to a different place where we looked at each other and said, how are you? Like, no, like really, how are you? How's it going? And we were able to get to a a depth of conversation because we had to wait that brought us into depth. Now, this is why I recommend fixed hours of prayer. When I say hours, it doesn't mean you're praying the whole hour, but it means a fixed time of prayer where you say, Lord, for this time, maybe for the next 10 minutes. In fact, I'd encourage you, if you're just starting at this, use the Lord's Prayer as your kindling. Matthew 6, go to the Lord's Prayer, read through it, and pray based on the Lord's Prayer just for 10 minutes. Set that iPhone timer and put it in a different room, but put it loud enough where you can hear it, and just pray for 10 minutes. And during that time, you're going to have Cheerios and iPhone moments, right? But if you say and you commit to it ahead of time, Lord, I'm not going anywhere until this time is up. I'm not going anywhere until this time is up. Then you get through that and you stay and you sit until you're able to look at God and really pray in your prayers. Do you know what I mean by that? It's that kind of prayer that isn't just, Lord, I need you. It's, it's that kind of place where I am in the prayer. I don't just send prayers up to God, but I send even myself up to God in prayer, pouring out my heart before him. But that can't happen in drive-through moments. Now, drive-through moments are great. There's times where we need to cry out to God and just say, God, I need you. Help me. You're good. Thank you. But that can't be our diet. We need regular routine time where we sit and say, I'm not going anywhere else. Yeah, it's crazy that we need a 10-minute timer to tell us when we should leave the presence of God. It's a little crazy, right? Like Isaiah didn't need a timer in Isaiah 6. When he was seeing the glory of God, he wasn't like, all right, what's the time? But we need that. We need to recognize the resistance even of our own flesh and prepare for it. We're still wrestling with the sinful nature that hates when we come to prayer. So we need to prepare for it. We need to be real with it and know, I am going to pull myself from prayer. So I'm not going to let myself pull myself from prayer. Right? So commit to the routine. Right now, just say, this is what we do. For me and my wife, what we've found as a family that's helpful is at nighttime when Kelly's feeding Ruthie and it's a time of just natural rhythm that we just take that time, we read a psalm and we pray. And when, I, and when we pray, we pray. See, that's the thing. You don't need to pray for 30 minutes at the start. It's the quality of prayer as you're in that five-minute prayer or 10-minute prayer of you're saying, Lord, I, I'm, I'm already coming to you. Let me not just say my prayers. Let me really come to you and see you and declare my need for you now. Commit to a routine of prayer. Some of you, a lot of you, and I I feel this tension is you see that as too regimented, too dry. 
You think, I want a spontaneous life with God. You know, I, wanna, I want God to just break through. I want to I see God do amazing things. I want to have experiences with God. I want to see visions and, and have dreams and encounters with God. And I say to that, amen. Praise God for that desire in you. And yet I'd ask, I'd ask this is, what kind of experiences are you talking about? Are you talking about visions? Are you talking about the interpretation of dreams? How about being delivered from a den of lions? That's a pretty cool experience. And yet Daniel had these experiences and he did not see routine and experience as contradicting one another. Instead, he was like a farmer who doesn't just sit in the home and go outside and say, where, is the, where are the colors of my harvest? Where, where is the fruit and the taste of what I've planted? What, why, can't I, why can't I see any of this? Well, it's because he didn't sow. He didn't plant. He didn't water. Instead, he's like the farmer who went out day in, day out, sowed into prayer with an expectation for reward. He came in and said, I believe that God is going to answer. And you know what? His original prayer was answered by being cast into a den of lions. And it's going to seem that way to you sometimes. You're going to pray and you're going to come in expecting a reward like we've talked about and you're going to feel none of it. And you got to remember that farming is different than microwaving. The scriptures did not, for bearing fruit and sowing seed, the scriptures did not give us the analogy of microwave. It gave us the analogy of a farmer. And the farmer sows and the farmer waters consistently by routine every day. He's expectant. He's dependent on the rain. And yet he's entirely unable to bring about the result. But he goes and he hopes. And when he sees the crop, he knows this is the seed I planted. And yet this ultimately had nothing to do with me. This was outside of me. And so it is with us. Give yourself to committed, disciplined, routine, fueled by grace. Because you have a father who loves to see you more than you love to see him, go to him. Disciplined. Go to him. Keep going to him and expect reward in prayer. That's our third point. So this sermon is close to home for me. So when I was in high school, I shared this last time I prayed. When I was in high school, I was very far from the Lord. I was very far from the Lord. I, just, I didn't want anything to do with him. I found reward in the things of God and not in the, thing, or in the things of the world and not in the things of God. I didn't want anything to do with God. And yet I found myself out into a summer camp where they forced us to go outside and pray to God. And honestly, I would have done anything else if it wasn't pitch dark and we were away from our cell phones. I had nothing else to do, so I had to look up at the stars and pray. And so I said something to the effect of, all right, God, if you're there, do something. It's a great prayer, right? And what I experienced in that time changed my life. See, it was as if I was calling up to God and there was a brick wall that was bouncing my words back to me. My prayers did not reach heaven. And it wasn't as if I experienced the non-existence of God. It was, as, it was that I experienced the absence of a God who exists. I experienced the emptiness of being separated from the Lord. See, growing up in Charlotte, kind of having the knowledge of God and having gone to church, I kind of always thought, if, all, if anything goes wrong, God's my homeboy. He's going to be there for me. If everything goes wrong, he's my, he's my safety net. And it was in that time where the Lord graciously showed me a glimpse of his wrath and showed me, if you remain in your sin, if you remain in your sin, and what I mean by that is not you just confess that you're a Christian, but if, if you go your own way and make your own decisions and do your own thing against me, if you remain in your sin, I'm not your homeboy. We're not cool. I don't hear your prayer. Your sin has separated you from me. I, I don't hear your prayer. So I want to love you in this room who are not following Jesus. In this culture, it's easy to think what I thought. I thought the same thing, that God, God's for me. 
He's got my back. And yet I want to tell you, if you remain in your sin, if you keep going your own way instead of submitting to God as the Lord and Savior of your life, he does not hear your prayer. You can't just call up to him. He's not your homeboy. He is against you. There's distance. I went back to my cabin. I think they were expecting me to goof off or something, but they asked, you know, how was your time in prayer? And I just broke down crying. Like, what has happened to Joey? And I went outside and I don't even remember exactly what I said, but it was at that time where I knew I needed to flee to Jesus. And as someone was praying to me, I prayed something to the effect of my heart, Lord, I, I need you and I need to be saved. And I pray you'd come, Jesus. God won't hear your prayer if you're not following him. He doesn't hear your prayer. Y'all aren't cool. But he does hear that prayer. He does hear that prayer. If you don't know God, he will hear your prayer when you call up to him and say, I need you. I'm done going my own route, seeking reward in the world. I want you. I want this prayer life that we're talking about. I want you. Lord Jesus, would you save me? Would you be mine? He hears that prayer. And you can pray that right now. I found that. I discovered I went, I went back to kind of the world. And over the next week, I tried everything I could possibly do to run away from God and try to forget what had just happened to me. I tried to do everything I could possibly do. And I kind of came back from that experience a couple weeks later and thought, well, that was a good try at religion. I guess, guess that didn't work out. And yet I found my soul being drawn to Jesus. And I, I tried to pray again. And I prayed out. And, and this time when I called out to the Lord, I found openness, welcome, embrace. See, that's the difference. I was no better the second time than I was the first time. I did not pray my way into access with God. What was the difference? Jesus had taken me in. He had taken hold of me. You see, when you put your faith and trust in God, God clears away your sin. He does not count your iniquity, your sin, your transgressions against you. And he welcomes you. He adopts you as a son, as a daughter of God. He opens the way. He opens the gate to himself. You cannot earn the rewards of prayer. They are blood bought by Jesus Christ in full and laid out before you. But you must take them. You must take them. See, Jesus has opened the gate wide for you to come to him. Don't feel like you need to pray your way back in. Go right to him. Through Jesus, you have access to the Father. The son of God, child of God, daughter of God, go to him. Go to him. Expect resistance. Commit to routine, but also expect reward. You know that Jesus, in Jesus' name that we tack to the end of our prayers? Put that at the beginning of your prayer. Put that at the middle of your prayer. Put that in every place in your prayer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. So when I face resistance to prayer, I believe that the Lamb of God has overcome the Lion of Satan, and I'm going to press through because he stands and he is alive. Because he is living, I will live with him and Satan has no hold on me. So I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to pray in Jesus' name, not in the name of my own feelings. So when I don't feel like praying, I'm going to look to him and say, you're so worthy. You're so precious. You're so amazing that I don't care how I feel. I'm coming to you now because you are worthy of my devotion. Pray in Jesus' name, expecting reward. Because in Christ's name, you have received an inheritance. An inheritance in the kingdom of God that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. In Jesus' name, you have received the best inheritance there is, and that is God himself with you, Emmanuel. Because he promises never to leave you, never to forsake you. Seek him, 
constantly. He's near, so seek him. Let's pray. When I say, let us pray, I want to ask you to do that, to pray with me. Father, we long to experience the reward of prayer, your very presence, the joy of your spirit. We have an open invitation with the Son of God always. It's crazy. But our hearts are so weak. We're often so blind. So I pray that your grace would be sufficient for us. I pray that your power would be made perfect, not in strong people, experts at prayer, but I pray that your power would be made perfect in weak people who need you to to pray, to come to you. We need you, God, even to pray. But Lord, I pray that we as your children would see your smile, would see your blessing, would see that you're not crossed arms, foot tapping, disappointed at us, but you want to be with us, so you call us to yourself. Help us to come. Help us to make resolves for good, and would you give us the power to keep them, because we can't do it alone. And Lord, for those who do not know you here, I pray you'd give them the same moment you gave me. To know that they may have all the world, but what profit is that if they lose their souls? I pray, Lord, they would see that you are better than life and come to you. Oh, Jesus, teach us to pray. Make us a people of prayer. Not for us, not for us, but to your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.